Preston, if you go ahead and get your Bibles open to 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel. <clears throat> We're going to be in chapter 16 and 17, if you want to go ahead and get there. 1 Samuel. Now, I know what a lot of you are thinking. It's Easter. I came here to hear about the resurrection, not about David. Well... Hold on. I'll show you where it, where it works and how it's all together. And even if it doesn't, I'm the preacher, so you just get to listen. Amen? But we are going to talk about the resurrection this morning. 1 Samuel chapter number 16. Now, this morning, as we, we continue through our, our Bible study, through the whole Bible this year, we're going to look at one of the most famous Old Testament characters. And the life of David is one of the best-known Old Testament stories. It shows the rise and the fall of one of God's choicest servants. Now, we all know about David's victories, David and Goliath, but we also know about David's failures. You know, David and Bathsheba, where David numbered the people and God sent a plague, where David's own men turn on him because they think he made a mistake. And just David has all kinds of failures. And of course, the Psalms, most of the Psalms were penned by David uh, during his, his rule as king over Israel. And his, his Psalms are you know, one of the most cherished books in Christianity. And I love them because David uh, is almost a spiritual schizophrenic. You know, one psalm, he's like, oh, God, I love you so much, and you're so close to me. I feel like you're going to smother me with your love. And then the next psalm, he's like, God, where are you at? I ain't seen you in 15 years. You're so far away from me. I don't know what's going to happen. And so he's just up and down and up and down. And that's, that's how a walk with God is. You know, no one's always on top with God. If you're like, well, I am, you're a liar, all right? We all have spiritual ups and downs, times where we feel like God's just so close we can just reach out and touch him. And then times where we feel like God's so far we, we pray and our prayers don't seem to even get a foot above our head and they just fall back to the ground worthless and pointless. And so I love David and David's one of the most cherished Old Testament uh, characters. But his story begins in the book of 1 Samuel which takes up right after the book of Judges. Now, we saw last week the book of Judges is one of the darkest times in Israel's history. It's filled with idolatry, wickedness, human sacrifice, sexual perversion, and that's from the Israelites. That's not from the Canaanites, that's from God's people. Have gotten so far from God, have become so wicked that they are worse than the Canaanites they were supposed to drive out. And so God puts these judges in charge of them, but these judges are just as bad. I mean, they get worse and worse and worse until we end with Samson, which again, I know we like to Christianize Samson, you know, and, and make him a VeggieTales character and he's this great guy. Samson was an arrogant pervert who took the nation of Israel into wickedness and idolatry and cared nothing about God cared only about his own pleasure. And he's the last judge before we get to 1 Samuel. The theme of the book of Judges is repeated throughout the book, and it's, it's there was no king in the land, and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. 
Because there was no king, people did whatever they wanted to. But the thing is, there was a king. God was their king. But they'd forgotten about him. They'd rejected him. They'd left, all, left him. And so God constantly through the book of, of Judges, he's sending judgment to them. He's sending plagues to them. He's sending invasions to them. They're being taken into slavery. And then they repent and they remember, oh yeah, we got to serve God. And they repent and come back to God. And so God blesses them and frees them. But then they get back in that situation and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse because there was no king in the land and everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. Now, 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel begins with the birth of the prophet Samuel. Now, Samuel is called by God as a young man to be a prophet over the nation of Israel. Samuel actually becomes one of the last judges over the nation of Israel. But unlike the judges in the book of Judges, he's a godly man. He walks with God. He follows God, he obeys God, he worships God, and he leads the nation of Israel back into worship of the one true God. And blessings are coming because of his, his leadership in Israel. But he starts to get older. And as he's getting older, he understands, I'm not going to be able to be the judge over Israel forever. So he starts to put his two sons into a position to judge over Israel after his death. But his sons are wicked. His sons are evil and they're perverted and they're just, they, all they care about is themselves. So the leaders of Israel come to Samuel and say, look, we know that God has placed you here for this time and you've done a great job of leading us back to worship God, but you're getting old and your sons are terrible and we don't want them. We want a king, just like every other nation. We want a king that we can have. Now, Samuel, he warns them that this is a bad idea. King's going to take your money. He's going to take your land. He's going to take your sons for his wars. He's going to take your daughters for his pleasure. You don't want a king, but they do. And so God tells Samuel, let them have what they want. Give them a king. We'll work it out. Now, the sad part about this is, again, once God was supposed to be a king, they had a king. So when they come and say, give us a king, God was already their king. But they wanted the king they could see and touch and, and, and see personally and, you know, interact with. They wanted a king just like everybody else. So God sends Samuel across the nation of Israel to find the king, the first king of Israel, and he comes upon Saul. Saul was a natural choice. He was tall, which is always good in a king. You don't want a short king, right? Bible says he was head and shoulders over everyone else, which again, during this time, most grown men were like five foot six, five foot, you know, five foot five, five foot six. They weren't very tall anyway. So Samuel, he's like, you know, five foot 10, you know, maybe six foot. He's a big guy. He's a handsome guy. He comes from a wealthy family. So he appears to be the natural choice. And God says, yeah, go ahead and pick him. So Saul, Samuel anoints Saul as king over Israel, and he starts out great. There's victories. He's listening to the advice of Samuel, the wisdom of Samuel. He's following God. But very soon, things start to go downhill because Saul becomes arrogant and prideful. And that's always the beginning of the end. 
He's, there's one battle God has told him to go and kill the Amalekites and says, wipe them out, their, their, their women, their children, their animals, everything. And so he goes down and has this great victory, but he doesn't obey God. He brings back the best of the animals for the sacrifice. And he blames it on the soldiers. Like, hey, I told them to do it, but they're like, no, we need these. I couldn't stand against them. And then he kept the king for ransom, the king of the Amalekites. So God, you know, he disobeys God. And then a couple chapters later, he's waiting. They're waiting to go to battle again. And they need to have a sacrifice to have God's blessing. But Samuel is taking too long. So Saul offers a sacrifice to God. He was forbidden. The only person who could offer a sacrifice to God on behalf of the nation of Israel was the prophet Samuel at this time. So Saul, he gets here. He thinks he can do it. So God rejects Saul as king. Tell Samuel, I've rejected, I repent of the fact that I ever made him king at all. It's time to find a new king. So God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse. Jesse is the grandson of Ruth, who we looked at last week. Remember Ruth? The Moabite, the poor widow Moabite, who the Moabite people had been, you know, cursed by God because they were the result of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And so God had rejected them and told Israel, don't have anything to do with them. But God chooses this rejected, outcast, poor widow to be in the line of Jesus Christ. And so he comes to Jesse's house and he says, God has sent me here <coughs> to find the next king of Israel. And he says, it's going to be one of your sons. Well, naturally, Jesse thinks it's Eliab. He's the oldest son. And, you know, the oldest son is always the best son, right? In this culture, it was. I know Parker's like, yeah, but no. But the oldest son got all the, he, he got the inheritance. He got the name. He got, he got the blessing. He got everything. So it was best, the youngest son was like, if, especially if you had a lot of sons, the youngest son was just out of luck. And so they bring Eliab forth, and Eliab, man, he's a tall guy, he's strong, he's handsome looking, and they think it's going to be him. So look at the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse number 6. And it came to pass, when they were come, uh, okay, that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So Eliab, he looked apart. He was a young guy, strong, strapping, strong, oldest. So Samuel looks at him and says, he looks like a king. That's our next king. But he also said that about Saul. So look what God says in verse number seven. But the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Samuel should have known better. Yeah, Eliab looked apart, but so did Saul. So he, he was relying on the outward appearance. And God says, look, don't worry about the outside. That's what man looks at. I look at the heart. Maliah may have looked like a king, but if you, if you follow his story, he, he becomes a critical, arrogant man that doesn't even trust God. And God is looking for something different in the next king. He is looking for someone who has a heart 
to follow him and serve him. What God, when God is looking to use someone, he never looks on the outside. He always looks at the heart. He wants a heart that is prepared to walk with him, prepared to surrender to him, prepared to do his will. So the question is, how much did you prepare your heart this morning to come and worship God? I mean, it's Easter. A lot of you are wearing, you know, new clothes to look the part. I'm wearing a new sweater, and I know it's pink, but real men wear pink. I like it because she likes it. So I got a new shirt on. I'm even wearing new socks, new Easter socks that have pink on them. My kids are wearing new shirts. April's got a new dress. Lexi's got a new dress. We all, man, we prepared. Okay, Taylor's got a new dress, apparently. Parker's waving at me. We all prepared our outside today. You, you got up. I hope you brushed your teeth, combed your hair, got nice, look good. How long did you spend preparing your heart to worship God? Because that's what matters to God. God doesn't care how nice your, your outside is. He doesn't care how shiny your shoes are. He don't care how, how nice the outside is. God says, I want to know what your heart is like. We have to prepare a heart to serve God. That's what matters to God. But that's not part of the sermon. Anyway, so God tells Samuel that Eliab is the chosen king. So he has all of Jesse's sons walk past him, but God doesn't choose any of them. Look what it says in verse number 10. It says, again, Jesse made seven of his sons pass to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, the Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, are here all thy children? Like, is this all your kids? Because God said it's one of your kids and it's none of these kids. So is this all your kids? Did you forget one? And he said, there remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. So they all walk past and, you know, they, they're like, you know, this all your kids. And David's father says, oh yeah, there is that, that last one, the youngest one. But he's out watching the sheep. He's, he's not even important. He is forgotten by everyone, including his fathers. Now, the word youngest there, when he says there is but the youngest, it is the Hebrew word katan. And it literally means insignificant, unimportant. He says, yeah, I got one more, but he's unimportant. How'd you like your dad to say that about you? He's just keeping the sheep. You know, shepherds in this time, being a shepherd was considered a lowly occupation. It was, it was like the equivalent of, I don't, I want to say a trash man, but I love my trash men. I try to give them cash every once in a while, so we'll keep taking my trash, especially when I pile it up. And they make good money. So, you know, it's like, but they were just, their job, you know, like a janitor who scrubs toilets or, you know, those guys who clean porta potties. How many of y'all want to have that job where you clean porta potties? Nobody. That's what, that's what a shepherd was. They were lowly, insignificant, unimportant, dirty. He says, well, I got one, but he's not important. And Jess, uh, Samuel says, well, we're not going to sit down to eat until he gets here. Somebody better go get him. So one of the important sons goes to get little, unimportant, insignificant, forgotten David. Look what it says in verse 12. 
And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now ruddy means redheaded. It can also mean dirty. So he's just this little, dirty, red-headed kid. We know he's a kid because in the next chapter, Israel goes to war and David doesn't go. So he's at least under 16 because if you were 16 and over, you went to fight. So he's, he's, he's under 16. He's just this little, puny, dirty, red-headed kid. But the Bible says he was a good-looking kid. So he's a, a good-looking, dirty kid, but he's a good-looking kid. And as soon as he comes in, God tells Samuel, that's the new king. That's who I'm going to use. So he anoints him king over all of Israel. Now, David wasn't chosen because of his strength or his awesomeness. Because he wasn't strong. He wasn't awesome. He was insignificant. He was unimportant. He was forgotten. But he chose him because David had a heart to worship God. And that's why God chose him. He was able to be filled with God's spirit because he wasn't full of himself. And then in chapter 17, go ahead and flip there. We come to one of the best known stories in the Old Testament, the story of David and Goliath. And we all think we know this story and the meaning of this story, but I'm going to show you some incredible truth that we often miss out when we're reading this story. So look at verse number one in chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shukoth, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shukoth and Azekiah in you, that place. You can't pronounce it either, and I went to college. But anyway, so the Philistines, they're the bad guys. You know, whenever you're reading the Bible, you know, or any story, there's good guys and bad guys. The Philistines are the bad guys. They have pestered Israel. They have berated Israel. They are constantly invading Israel. They are just a thorn in the side of the nation of Israel. They have constantly irritated them. They've, attacked, they've even stolen the Ark of the Covenant once, and they're going to do it again. And so it's just, they are the bad guys. And, but... They were a powerful nation. History tells us that the Philistines were the first civilization to master metalwork. So they, they've got mail, chain mail and they've got metal, you know, metal uh, weapons and metal shields. And Israel's still in the Stone Age, just barely getting by. They're, they're a superior army. And Israel was intimidated by them. Look at chapter number uh, chapter number. 17, verse number 3. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side. And there was a valley between them, and there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, Goliath is nine foot, six inches tall. You know how tall that is? That's tall. I'm six foot. I don't think I can even reach nine foot. I'm like, I'm like at eight foot here. I could jump, not even get in close to that. Let's put it in perspective for you. Who knows who Manute Bowl is? I know Bryson does. He knows Manute Bowl. He is the tallest person to ever play in the NBA, and he was only seven foot seven. Now, 
I just watched, I, when I was preparing for this, I watched a little video on him. He was seven foot seven and 170 pounds. This was his legs. But he was tall. Goliath is two feet taller than him. And Goliath's not a pipsqueak. Goliath is a huge, muscular man. Now, remember, you got people like, was he really a giant? All right, you're five foot six, and you come up to a nine foot six guy? Yeah, he's a giant. He's massive, he's strong, and he is intimidating the nation of Israel. Look at verse number five. And he had on a helmet of brass upon his head. Okay, brass is important because they can work with metal. <laughs> and brass is heavy. Uh, upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And say, how heavy is that? Heavy. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. And one bearing a shield went before him. So, again, Goliath, he's this massive, strong guy covered in chain mail, covered in armor. He is, he is a, a force to be reckoned with on the battlefield. And he's taunting the nation of Israel. They were engaging in what was known as representative warfare. What they would do is each side would pick someone to fight for them. And these two men would meet in the middle of the battlefield and they would fight to the death. And whichever man won, that army won the, won, won the battle. It was a way to win a battle without, you know, sacrificing or losing thousands of men. So they agree to representative warfare, and Philistines say, okay, here's our guy. Here comes this nine-foot-six giant saying, come and fight me. And everyone in the nation of Israel, everyone in the army of Israel said, not it. I ain't going out there. That guy's huge. And so for 40 days, he's taunting the nation of Israel. Come out and fight me, you cowards. Send a man. Is there even a man in the army? Send someone to fight me. Your God's pathetic and you're pathetic. And the nation of Israel, the whole army is just acting like he's not even there. They're just ignoring him. Are you hear anything? I don't hear nothing. I don't hear nobody, nobody cussing my God. He's just, I don't, I don't hear anything. That must be the wind. So for 40 days, he's saying, send someone out to fight me. Look at verse number 11. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, Saul is the king. Saul is the tallest guy in Israel. Saul is the one who should be going to fight this guy, but he's like, I'm not going. I'm the king. Send somebody else. He should fight, but he's just as scared. Now, David and Jesse, they're at home. They have no idea what's happening. You know, David, he's been anointed king, but he's still watching the sheep. He's still at home just doing his job, doing his duty. As the newly anointed king of Israel, he's watching the sheep. And Jesse sends him to check on his brothers, bring him a little snack. Really, he just doesn't say, I need you to go check, make sure your brothers are okay. Do they need anything? Are they still alive? There's no, you know, there's no CNN or Fox News to get reports, so he's got to wait for them to get back. And so he sends David to check on his brothers. Look at verse number 23. And as he talked with them, he's talking to his brothers, behold, 
there came up from the champion of the Philistines, Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words. So again, Goliath shows up. He's doing this every morning, every evening, coming out, send me a man. Y'all are a bunch of cowards. Your God is pathetic. I'm going to kill whoever you send out here. And so he does the exact same thing, but the verse ends, and David heard them. David heard this giant cussing his God. And David gets mad. David says, if no one else is going to go fight this jerk, I'll go shut him up. David, little, little red-headed, freckle-faced, dirty shepherd David, going against a nine-foot-six giant, says, I'm going to shut him up. His brothers, of course, mock him, tell him to shut up, you're an idiot, you can't do anything. And he starts getting around the camp to, hey, you hear this? Now, no one knows David is king except his brothers who are mocking him and ridiculing him and telling him to shut up and go home and wash the sheep. That's all you're good for. But it gets back to Saul that, hey, there's this little kid running his mouth saying, he'll, he'll kick Goliath's tail if you won't. So Saul brings David in. Do, do, you know, we look at it like Saul brought him in like, hey, could you please? No, Saul brings him in to scold him. He's like, you can't fight this guy. You're, you're a little kid. You're, you're puny. Look what it says in verse 32. <clears throat> Let me flip there. Uh, says, and David said to Saul, let not man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. So David says, look, don't get worried. I'll go fight this guy. And Saul says, you are going to get killed. You are a puny little nothing. And he's been fighting and killing people since he was your age. And he's like six times bigger than you. There's no way you can go do this. And look at what David says in verse 34. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. So David says, no, I can take care of the Saul. I killed a bear one time. Now, it was a koala bear, but it was a bear. Now, I actually did some research on this. I'm like, are there bears in Israel? And if they are, are they bad? And there aren't any more, but there are. The bears that used to live in Israel now live in India, and they are like big brown bears. They're, they're, they're bears. It's not a bear. It's not like, you know, Winnie the Pooh out there. It's a bear. And the lions, you know, they were, they were real lions. They've, they've extinct in that area now. And again, they've kind of moved to Israel, to India, but they, they still had lions. So, you know, so it wasn't like Pooh Bear and the cowardly lion he's fighting. He's killing real bears, real lions. And he tells Saul, look, I took care of that bear. I took care of that lion. I'll take care of this Philistine. So Paul, I mean, Saul... Basically, uh, and Saul armed, uh, uh, skip on down to verse 42. Oh, I, I didn't put the verse in there. But anyway, so Saul, he says, okay, if you're going to fight him, you're going to need my armor. David rejects it. And basically what Saul says is, good luck. We'll say something real nice over your grave. Have fun. Do whatever you're going to do. Uh, and then look at verse 42. <clears throat> and this is we're going to read a lot of scripture here down to verse 52. And when the Philistine looks, so David goes out there. He goes, 
he goes down to the stream, he gets some five stones and he goes out there. And so David is just out there, a little kid, freckle-faced with a slingshot and Goliath comes out and sees what Israel has said. Goliath is insulted. If he wasn't mad before, he's furious now. Look at verse 42. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained about and saw he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and a fair countenance. Again, this little red-headed cutie pie is coming out here to fight me. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give thy flesh to the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with sword and with spear and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into my hands, and I will smite thee and take thy head from thee, and I will give thy carcass to the host of the Philistines, uh, uh, the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day into the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth may know there, there is a God in Israel. That's some pretty tough talk coming from a little kid with a couple rocks in his hand facing a giant. David's got his smack talking down. He's doing pretty good. He's like, you, you say what you want to. My God's going to kill you, and we're going to feed the, the, the birds with your flesh. And it came to pass, uh, and all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you, you into our hands. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hastened and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. He runs to him. Everyone else is running. David's running to this guy. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead. And that stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. You know, I wonder if the last thing to go through Goliath's mind before that rock was how this kid kill me. Y'all missed it. The rock went through his mind. Get it? <laughs> Come on, folks. Work with me. So David prevailed over the Philistine and a with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his, his sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until they came to the valley and to the gates of Ekron and wounded of the Philistine and the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way of Shamrah unto Gath unto Ekron. So David, it's a great battle. Goliath comes out in full armor, full, full you know, force. He's got his shield on, his mail on, his helmet on, his sword, his spear. And David comes out and he is just so furious. He's like, I'm going to massacre you for even insulting me this way. And David just, you know, slows a little stone, hits him right in his head and, and kills him. David isn't scared. And he, he slings a stone and then he runs off and he, he cuts off his head. And the army of Israel and the army of Philistine are watching this. I have to imagine there was a, an awkward pause after David cuts off Goliath's head and holds it up. But they're like, both of them are like, did that really just happen? So the Philistines take off and Israel's like, 
I guess so, let's go. And so they chase after the Philistines, and it's an incredible victory. A lot of people have taught a lot of things about what this story means for us today. You know, I've heard people talk, you know, never stop believing in yourself. You can beat giants too. If you trust God, you're going to have victory over all the giants in your life. God has appointed you to conquer the giant of mediocrity and to dominate every of your life. Now, look, I've heard all those things, and some of them are okay, and some of them can be applied in that context. But here's the problem with all of them. In all those applications, we're David. We're David. Whatever we're facing is Goliath, and with God's help, we can slay our giants. How many of y'all have ever heard that? We're not David. Now look, we're in the story, but we're not David. Say, are we the Philistines? No. We're not Goliath either. We're the cowardly army of Israel, too scared to do anything to fight that giant. We're sitting in our tents, acting like it's not even there. We're ignoring the problem until someone else shows up and fixes it for us, and then we're going to enjoy the victory. We did nothing to earn it. We did nothing to fight for it. But when someone else has, does the victory, you know, fights for us and wins, we're going to enjoy the victory of that. So in this story, we are cowardly chicken Israel. Jesus is David, and Satan is Goliath. He did all the fighting, we get all the victory. So I told you I was going to show you how this was resurrection related, all right? So we're going to get there. So Dave is a picture of Jesus. He's overlooked by everybody. You know, Jesus came as a baby, he was overlooked by everybody. The Bible even says his brothers rejected him. You know, Jesus is the Messiah. He's 30 years old, he's performing miracles, he's turning water into wine at a wedding for his mom, he's healing people from, the de from sickness, he's raising them from the dead, and his brothers come and are like, why don't you stop pretending to be the Messiah? His brothers who were raised with him, who should have known this guy's God because he ain't ever wrong. He's never done anything wrong, but they didn't even believe in him until after he resurrected David is called by his own father. He's unimportant. He's insignificant. He doesn't matter. We face huge giants in our life that we could never defeat, that we are too scared to fight. And Jesus defeats them for us. He did what we couldn't do, like David. He was opposed by his brothers and abandoned by everyone at the moment of battle. When David's on that battlefield facing Goliath, you know who has his back from the nation of Israel? No one. Saul's not there. His brothers aren't even there like, we got to take care of our brother. You know, you see these, these war movies where brothers are always taking care of each other. And i got to take care of my brother. i got to protect my brother. David's brothers were like, let him. He wants to die. Let him die. He doesn't matter anyway. He's abandoned by everyone when he needs him most. He walked onto the battlefield all alone. And as, he, as Jesus, as he hung on the cross, everyone that should have been there with him 
had left him. Peter, who the night before Jesus' crucifixion, said, I will never leave you. I will fight till the death for you has gone. James, all his disciples, they're gone. They've abandoned him, abandoned him, and left him to suffer and bleed and die all by himself. And the crucifixion that Jesus endured was excruciating. The, the humiliation he endured as they ripped his beard from his face, as they put a crown of thorns on him and scourged him with a cat of nine tails and, and just mocked him and ridiculed him and beat him and hung him on a cross to fight our battle. He did it all alone. Just like little David walking out there on the battlefield with nobody. Left alone. Like Israel, we get to take part in the victory Jesus gives even though we didn't do anything to help him. We abandoned him. We rejected him. We left him alone, but we still get to enjoy his victory. So this, this story shows us something very important. And I'm going to try to get through it real quick, but not too quick because it's important. Amen. And uh, as we get through this, we're going to talk about the resurrection. Here's what I need from you. I need all of you to channel your inner Paul Gillespie. All right? I looked for an audio clip where I could have his, his voice amen when I was talking about the resurrection. I couldn't get a clear one because I was just going to sit here and just hit the button all the time. Because look, I, I miss Paul's amen. Y'all need to be louder than that, all right? Because I get it sometimes. Sometimes I'll, I'll be preaching about the resurrection. I'm like, oh, and I'm waiting for Paul's amen. And I just, mm. like, man, I miss Paul. So y'all need to channel your inner Paul and allow him to amen through you as I preach about the resurrection, all right? So here's what this story teaches us. Number one, it's only one point. Jesus defeated our biggest giants. Now look, your biggest giant is not some nine foot, six, nine inch, nine foot, six inch, it's not a nine inch guy either. It's not a nine foot, six inch bully throwing insults at you. Our greatest giant is alienation from God because of the penalty of our sin. See, Paul tells us in Romans, he says, the wages of sin is death. God told Adam and Eve in the garden, if you eat of the fruit, you will die. They ate, they eventually died. Now we can get real thinking, oh, well, that's just, now we're not gonna live forever, we're gonna physically die and that's it. No, no, no. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they, they did physically die like 600 years later, but they spiritually died immediately. Because as soon as they sinned, they were cast out of the presence of God. And they could never get back. God said, you're gone. Put an angel in front of the garden with a sword. Says, you can never come into my presence again on this earth because of your sin. That's the death that Paul is talking about. Death in Romans 3, 20, 6, 23 is the same Greek word used in Revelation chapter 20. I'll put it on the screen here. It says, and death and hell... Were cast in a lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life 
was cast into the lake of fire. The death that the Bible is talking about is spiritual death. It is being separated from God for all of eternity. Now, yes, it talks about the lake of fire. It talks about hell and fire and brimstone and torture and torment. And yes, that's, that's part of it. But what makes hell so terrible is not the torment or the torture or the flames or anything. What makes it so terrible is God's not there and never will be. That's what makes heaven so great. You know, I know we talk about heaven. It's like, oh, it's got walls of jasper and gates of pearl and streets of gold. It doesn't, by the way. That's a new heaven. We have no idea what this heaven right now looks like. But, you know, it doesn't matter if, if heaven was a desert, but God was there. It's worth it. That's what makes heaven so great. Not the, the images we get. You know, I talk to all kinds of people like, oh, man, when I get to heaven... I'm going to find my granddad and we're going to fish in the Crystal River for a million years. No, you're not. You know what you're going to do when you get to heaven? You're going to worship Jesus. Forever. Hey, look, you know, oh, there's a mansion in heaven. You know, I got a mansion over the hilltop. Again, that song is so unscriptural. But Jesus said in my father's house, there were any mansions. Didn't say you get one. But seriously, why do you want a mansion in heaven? Why do you want a place you can hang out and watch TV or something in the pool? Jesus is there. Just find a good spot at his feet and just praise him forever, and that's enough. That's what makes heaven so great. Jesus is there. God is there. What makes hell so terrible is he's not, and he never will be. Our biggest giant is a penalty of our sin. Because God says all have sinned. You know how I like to give you the original? Talk about the Greek and the Hebrew. In the Greek, you know what the word all means? It means all. All means all and that's all all means. Everyone who's ever lived was born a sinner. And sinners are separated from God for eternity because of their sin. Jesus defeated that giant for us. Look what the Bible says in Revelation 20. It says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. Remember, we talked about the second death earlier in Revelation. Bible says, hey, if you've taken part in the first resurrection, you don't have to worry about the second death. It's like, What's the first resurrection? Okay, well, here we go. Get to the resurrection part. Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life. He says, I came to fulfill the law, which means I came to do everything the law said to do. I completely obeyed the law, never one time transgressed it. No one else could ever say that. Because we can think, oh, well, I, I did great. Even the Pharisees thought, I've completely obeyed the law. But Jesus went even further, says, well, the Bible says don't kill. You ever hate somebody, you done killed them. You ever wish evil on someone? You, oh, Bible says don't commit adultery. You ever look at someone who's not your wife and think, woo, you're committed adultery. We can never not sin. And Jesus came and did not sin. Completely fulfilled the law. Proved he was God by working miracles, walking on water, raising the dead, healing the sick, feeding 5,000 with nothing. And then he's willingly, 
arrested. He's put on trial for my sin and for your sin. They trumped up some charges saying, oh, he's claimed he's the Messiah. He was. And they asked him, said, defend yourself. And he refused to defend himself. Why? Because he didn't have a good lawyer? No. Because he needed to go to the cross. So they scourge him. They beat him. They ridicule him. They hang him on a cross. The Bible says that when he hung on the cross, every joint came out of socket. Says he was beaten so severely, you couldn't even tell it was a human hanging on that cross. And the worst part of it, right before he dies, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, remember the crucifixion, it got dark. Because God poured out his wrath for mankind's sin on the Son of God and then turned his back on Jesus. And for a brief time, fellowship between God the Father and God the Son was broken. Because he was being punished for my sins and your sins. And he died. He willingly gave up his life. He's put in a borrowed tomb. And then if you read the crucifixion story, we're going to get to it in a little bit. The disciples and the, the women, they go to the grave on the first day of the week, Sunday, to anoint his body, but he's not there. The tomb is empty. Why? Because someone stole it? No, because he rose from the dead to reconcile us to God the Father. He came, he suffered, he died, he was buried, but he rose again, and we accept that as payment for our sins, we take part in the first resurrection. And when we do that, the second death has no power over us. By allowing his victory to become our victory, we enjoy the benefit of his victory. But he defeated more than just the penalty of sin. He also defeated the fear of death. Look at Revelation 1.18. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. See, when a believer dies, it's not tragedy for, for them. It's sad for us because we're still here. But it's victory for them. See, Jesus came as an unassuming baby, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, was beaten, mocked, nailed to the cross, and died because we had sinned against God. But he didn't stay dead on that third day. He rose from the tomb. And when he rose from the tomb, he stayed alive for all of eternity, and he defeated the sting of death for us. Look over Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, starting in verse number 1. And the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And fear for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear ye not, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. They went to mourn his death. 
They went to anoint his, his body, but he had beaten death as he rose from the grave. Now, for the believer, the giant of death has no power over us. Look what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? See, for the believer, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So for the believer, when we pass and we die, it's victory for us. It's great for us. Now, again, those who are left here, they have to mourn the loss. But for the believer, it's a victory. We close our eyes this side of eternity where there's sickness, there's pain, there's heartbreak, there's brokenness. And we open them immediately in heaven and we see our Savior face to face. And there's no more pain. There's no more sickness. There's no more brokenness. There's no more heartbreak. There is only joy with the Lord forever. Ever. You know, there's a plaque in the foyer with names of loved ones in this church who have died. We're about to add another one with Virginia Holly. But they're not losers. They're the winners. They're the ones who have won. We're the losers because we're still here. I still often think about Brother Paul when right before he went to be with the Lord. Sitting up and saying, you see all the flowers? You see my home? So he was just hallucinating. No. The veil between heaven and earth got thin and he got to see his home a little bit. And was reminding Imogene and the girls, I'm winning. I win. I'm leaving this life and I'm going to a better place. And man, I, I envy him. I'm sad for us because I don't get the amens anymore. Sad for us because I don't get to talk to him and talk about Jesus with him. And man, he just, he loved Jesus so much. But he won. He's victorious. They have experienced victory over death because Jesus slew that giant when he rose from the grave that first Easter morning. Look at the Bible says in Acts 2.24, whom, talk about Jesus here, God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holding to it. Jesus defeated death for us because it was impossible for him to stay dead because he is God. And that's what we celebrate today. That's what we remember today, that Jesus fought the greatest giants we would ever face. He fought the giant of the penalty of sin. He fought the giant of death and the grave and hell. He fought the greatest giants we would ever face, and he beat them. And because he beat them, we get to enjoy the benefits. We get the victory because of him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, here's the, the greatest trade that man's ever gotten. For he, Jesus, hath made him sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The perfect, sinless God in the flesh took my sin and through his resurrection, gives me his righteousness. I didn't do anything to earn it because I couldn't do anything to earn it. Because no matter, all my righteousness is as filthy rags. 
But Jesus says, I'll take your nasty, filthy, disgusting sin. I'll pay the price for it. And here you get my righteousness. That's the greatest trade ever. That's the greatest deal we could ever get. We receive his righteousness through his resurrection. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We aren't worthy of it. But we get it through his victory. That's what Easter's about. Israel enjoyed an incredible victory of the Philistine army because David said, y'all are too cowardly or too scared or unable to fight this guy. I'll go fight him. I'll fight the battle. I'll win. You enjoy the victory. We enjoy the victory over sin and hell and the grave because Jesus said, those are giants you cannot beat. I'll fight them for you. And since he won, we get to enjoy the victory. You know, Easter, it's about so much more than nice shirts and dresses and lunches with your family and searching for Easter eggs. It's a time to remember and celebrate the fact that Jesus took the field of battle against our giants and he won them for us. He defeated the giant of sin and its penalty. He defeated the giant of hell. He defeated the giant of death. He did what we were unwilling or unable to do through his death, burial, and resurrection. Today, if you've never accepted his victory on behalf of your life, if you've never said, God, I'm going to put my trust and faith in what you did for me, because I can never win it. If you've never done that, don't leave here this morning without doing it. The Bible says today is a day of salvation. You say, well, I'm a preacher. I'm saved. I've been saved for years. Well, what am I supposed to do? Take some time, and we should do this on more than Easter, but take some time. Say, Jesus, thank you for beating the giants. I never could. Thank you for winning the victory that I was never going to fight anyway. You did what I couldn't. Take some time and thank him for that this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.